The Behemoth Brewing Company presents the Department of Conversation with Pat Brittenden. Behemoth, give me something hoppy. Okay, oh, Koto Fano, welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation. Thanks to Behemoth Brewing. Behemoth Brewery have been our feature sponsor for a while now, and uh, one of the things we love about them is, well, their beer. <laughs> how can you not love a beer? And coming into summertime, how can you not love a beer even more and more and more? Um, they've been around for more than seven years. They've made over 240 beers. Many of those have been small batch one-offs. Uh, and they're kind of like the king of, I mean, this is my words, not theirs, the king of craft beers. Everyone seems to like a craft beer at the moment. Well, these guys do that, but on a bigger scale. So you get that kind of, uh, that kind of relational uh, craft beer vibe and feel, you know, when you think you're working with a nice small brewery, but the size and capacity to deliver, you know, bigger runs and um, experiment with beers as well. So check them out, behemothbrewing.co.nz. And thanks again for being a sponsor of the show. Um, now, we were actually, we're talking liquids today a little bit, actually. No, not those kind of liquids, not beer liquids, uh, but milk liquids. Um, Chris Hudiwai is a uh, young New Zealander, a young activist uh, who uh, grew up in Northland of New Zealand and uh, grew up on like a family farm, a small farm or a farmlet or a lifestyle block. And kind of started to, I'm paraphrasing here, but build a relationship with the animals that went beyond sort of owner animal. And through his journeys, he has moved into uh, veganism and also moved into uh, activism around protecting animals and doing what's best for, let's just say, ecology in general, because it's about the environment as well. Chris has been making a documentary for the last few years on the New Zealand dairying industry. Well, I guess it's the dairying industry in general because the documentary does have footage from offshore as well. But obviously, uh, being from Aotearoa, New Zealand, and being focused on, I guess, his own waters, his own streams, um, it's uh, heavily focused on New Zealand, heavily focused on Fonterra, I guess, being the biggest player. And looking at sort of, and these are not, again, not his words, but my words from seeing the documentary, sort of what is often referred to as dirty dairying and the damage that it's doing to the country and uh, the nonsense that there is uh, for this industry because it's so easy to move away from it if there was a desire to do so. It's on at the New Zealand International Film Festival right now. You can check it out. And welcome yourself. to the podcast, great uh, documentary and, uh, filmmaker, really Chris Hudiwai. Chris, good morning, Kaura, documentary and filmmaker to, uh, and activist, show, well, Chris Morena. Thanks so much for having me, Pat. Dude, it's a pleasure. Um, I am very excited to speak to you. Uh, you're one of our guests. We've had on the last little while to do with the New Zealand International Film Festival. Uh, you mm. are just releasing, have just released um, a feature-length documentary. Let's uh, let's bring up the festival page now, shall we, so people who can see, called Milked. Oh. And would it be would it be fair to say uh, it is an expose into the dairy industry, primarily in New Zealand, but obviously it. It could be taken anywhere in the world, but an expose into the New Zealand dairy industry. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the way that I like to look at it is we're trying to capture a local story. You know, it's a it's a Kiwi film. It's all filmed here in Aotearoa, except for a few kind of images that we've thrown in to display um, uh, outside external impacts that the dairy industry has had. You know, on say, for example, we've got links to deforestation for um, palm kernel expeller and things like that. And we import that yep. as a um, an external source of food for our dairy cows. But besides that, it's all filmed in Aotearoa. Uh, it's taking that local kind of small um, 
local story, but talking about a global issue. Um, so hopefully it's relatable for people. Um, people always say that they like these small scale, um, more intimate kind of um, low budget films. Um, and so hopefully we've able to capture that little charming uh, Aotearoa aspect that everyone usually falls in love with, um, but relating it to a global issue, telling a global story. Yeah, I wanted to ask you as well, because obviously you are, a, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of, it looks like it's been made by Amy Taylor, the director. Amy Taylor. And, um, but you're the, I was, I was trying to figure out, this is more of a logistical question. Are, are you the documentary mm -hmm. filmmaker and you're, I don't want to say employed her, it's the wrong word to use, but have you brought her on board to help you tell the story? Is it her story and you're sort of more thinking about content and producing? How do those roles work out between whose film it is, who's the maker, who's the subject, mm. et cetera, et cetera? Mm -hmm. um, well, I give full credit to Amy in terms of making this film happen. Um, she's been an absolute amazing um, lead for this project, um, but I would definitely say this is a combination of work um, of the two of us. She is more in the realm of the production, the directing. Um, she was the one man or one lady camera operation crew that came around and did the interviews. Um, but in terms of the story and the script writing, it's very much been a, a joint um, venture. Uh, the film follows me uh, and my journey uh, coming to understand dairy isn't the wholesome product that we're all led to believe it is. Uh, and so it, also, it is all about my story and it's a bit of a personal one as well. But uh, in terms of the, the bulk of the work, I have to give it uh, to Amy. She's the filmmaker in this sense. Um, I'm not a filmmaker myself. I make like little social media videos for YouTube and uh, Instagram and things like that. Um, but in terms of the professional filmmaker aspect of the film, I definitely have to give all the credit to Amy. But when it comes to the Oscar, uh, both of your names would be on it. Is that what you're saying? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel bad because obviously I'm the face of the film. I'm going to get so much uh, credit. Uh, so any opportunity I, I have um, to talk about Amy and how great she is, uh, yeah, I, I will do it. Um, she's been an absolutely incredible leader. It wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for her. There are a few times throughout the journey making this film where um, she's probably sending me email after email trying to get me to, um, <laughs> to communicate something. And I've just been like, oh. Um, so full credit to Amy. This film would not have happened uh, without her. It did look like quite a long process too. I think I noticed when you were talking to one of the farmers who was moving into pumpkin seeds that mm. the expiration date on one of the bags was October, ah. 20, October 2019. So have you been doing this for a couple of years? You got a good eye. I'm, I'm interested in to see what else you picked up, if that's the kind of detail you're you're looking at. Um, but it but was is, that quite right? a, is that what we saw? It was a very lengthy, yeah. Those were not bad pumpkin seeds he was trying to sell. <laughs> it was a very lengthy process and um as things dragged on we were worried that some of the footage is going to get quite dated but it's all still completely relevant um there is one personal story about um some of the transitioning dairy farmers they have since had a lot of barriers um come their way uh and so if i could change the film a little bit i'd probably give an update on where they are at um but i think the fact that their solution uh, that is talked about in the film hasn't come to fruition is just an example of how relevant uh, the film is in terms of needing to support these farmers into transitioning because, uh, uh, yeah, without it, they're not going to be able to get it done, essentially. 
Do you want to explain what that is now? I mean, if you, you said you want to put an addendum on it, you could do it now and explain what it was. You don't have to, obviously, if it's if it's more of a, a personal type thing, but you're more than welcome no, to as well. No, it's not personal. It's not personal. I'm wondering how much to share about the film. Um, you mentioned before that it's being released, but really um, in terms of it being publicly, publicly, globally available and accessible for everybody, it might still be quite a journey. Um, it is premiering at the New Zealand International Film Festival, but We've only just recently signed on with an international distributor to help us with our global distribution and getting it on the right platform. So yep. I don't want to give too much away, um, yep. but all I will say about it is that uh, the solution for the issue is there. It's about uh, legislation not being there to support um, that solution. And like I say, uh, I think it just backs up the film's point of needing to support dairy farmers I'm going to give one thing away, uh, and it's go one of the go things go. I enjoyed most of all. Uh, the name of the farmer who is in Martin, right? The guy who you talk to who's 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 in Martin. Um, it might have been the guy who was talking. He was quite a passionate guy, right? I thought, did you have to cast for him to look exactly like Cooch from Foot Rot Flats? Was that a directing decision? He looks exactly like Cooch from Foot Rot Flats. Uh... I was thinking, <laughs> he's he's a good he's a good guy he's he's in a uh, and his family as well incredibly hospitable as well when we came for that interview um a very genuine guy um one thing that i'm glad about is this film you know we didn't have any makeup or costumes or sets or anything and so i'm hoping it comes ac across as like a genuine uh representation of these people because we definitely didn't uh, cast anyone or dress anybody up <laughs> or anything like that i had a haircut I had a haircut. That's about as far as I went. I think I bought a new T-shirt or something. But nice. in terms of appearances, in terms of appearances, no, we, we didn't want to go there. Um, you talked before about, and this is a really minor point, but I did wonder it as we went through. You talked about now. I've, I've written the word down. Is it um, zo is it zoonotic diseases? Is that the name of the disease that zoonotic? Jumped from, and, um, yeah, zoonotic. zoonotic. Um, mm. You talked about it there, and you mentioned Ebola, and you mentioned some other things as well. Uh, you also mentioned COVID. Was there ever a conversation? Mm. Because I guess today there is a bit more of a debate of whether it came from the lab or whether it came from an animal. Has that conversation come up in the last few months about about changing that line at all? I'm not suggesting you should have, but I'm just wondering if it was even a even a, a conversation in the background at all. Um, interesting point. I haven't um, talked to anyone about that. You know, right. the last time I heard about COVID coming from a lab, you know, that was in the same period that we we're talking about other conspiracy theories that donald trump has been throwing around i'm out of the loop i'm out of the loop in terms of yeah, right, COVID has come I look I, I look I look let me just say i think it's pretty well understood now that there are questions now where as 12 months ago there was no questions but i'm not suggesting you should change it i just wonder if that was ever a ever a comment because yeah, i don't no. know i'm not saying i, I don't think know. you know we really just wanted to talk about something that was relevant to the times zoonotic diseases diseases that originate in animals and then often mutate and then can move on to humans is an incredibly large topic that we need to talk about in terms of our food production systems. Um, yeah. Whether or not COVID has come from a yeah. pangolin or a, a bat or from the lab is kind of irrelevant in terms of the conversation needing to be had. Um, but yeah, if that is the only thing in the film that you think we should think about changing, I'm, then I think we're I'm not actually saying I'm not actually suggesting you should change it. I was just wondering yeah. if you ever had that conversation. Look, no, I, no, I was I wondering as well. You're you're from Northland, um, and you talk about being on a farm, um, mm. and I'm wondering how your investigation. Whilst maybe not many of them, if any of them, have seen it right now, 
but how your investigation has been received by maybe some in your, just your personal community, because obviously you'll be surrounded by farmers. You'll be surrounded by dairy farmers as well. Have you had any like kind of personal pushback? I imagine there's pushback globally from the industry, but have you had any personal pushback or how have your local community received what you've been doing with investigation? Um, I haven't showed the film uh, to a whole lot of people. One thing that I was really excited and interested in was was simply hearing your feedback because I think you're the first probably um, non-biased person who has seen the film and can give some um, some feedback. So, uh, no, but at the same time, I have had support, say, from my local marae who want to do a screening once it's available. Um, cool. And those who have supported me through that process, um, you know, they've, they've supported me being on the marae to film, um, helping to promote the film by being involved in interviews and, and whatnot and helping to facilitate those interviews. Um, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, for most people, your community will have different pockets, right? Um, yep. I assume the dairy farmers uh, in my community of Otowa and Te Taitokero killed it. Um, <laughs> they might not be too hot uh, on the film because <sighs> although we do have solutions and we try and be as empathetic as possible to farmers and we try and uh, pass judgment on the industry and industry leaders who have led them to the current issues that they're now facing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're not going to be so hot on the film because it touches on sensitive topics and uh, it, it talks about the need to move away from the industry and change is always difficult for people. Um, but in terms of my community and people who know me, I've always been outspoken about intensive dairy farming, particularly, uh, and improving um, sources of fresh water for our people, for the environment, uh, and also to, of course, look after animals and the health of uh, human beings as well. Uh, and so everyone who knows me, they, they know that I'm coming from a genuine place, um, and they know that I use reputable sources and, and, and encourage discussion and dialogue. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, but but no, I haven't shown it uh, to the people that you're talking about yet, and I'm anxious to to see the response. But if they know me, and of course if they get through the whole film and are able to see um, see it from a uh, a charitable lens, I guess, or you know um, a compassionate lens, then hopefully they'll see uh, that we're coming from a space that's looking for solutions for them as well. It's just that these are naturally difficult conversations to have. Yeah, and look, I'm I'm more than happy to give you my thoughts on the documentary because for me, it also raises lots of questions, which is, I guess is what a documentary should do. But I am someone who is not heavily invested in dairy. I don't really drink milk. Um, it's just sort of a, a I don't I'm not a cereal type person. I don't drink coffee. You know, I like cheese. I have quite a bit of cheese. So I am involved. Yeah. I'm, not saying, I'm not I'm not I'm not saying I'm not involved. In fact, we'll talk about this later on, maybe. But um. You know, the, the guys from New Culture uh, excited me Ooh. a shit ton. Um, but we'll talk about that a bit later on. Um, yep. But I can tell you, here, here's something, here's some feedback for you. Uh, I watched it with somebody last night in my house on the on the big screen. That person this morning uh, chose to use the coconut milk in the fridge, not the dairy. And did oh. some research online as to how much soy milk was at, you know, Countdown. So that's one person anecdotally, but that happened in mm. my house last night mm. that someone's now looking at it going, eh. I mean, for me, like I've been involved in news media for a very long time. So, you know, I've seen the reports on nitrogen. I've seen the reports on, on the, um, on the rivers and how dirty they are, but probably 
I'm 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 sort of I'm dyslexic and I and I do visual imagery better. Yeah. When you've shown it to me, it's it's meant something a bit more. So I think yeah. it's probably brought some of the stuff that I've heard about, thought about, read about, and brought it refreshed back into sort of my foresight. But I can tell you, out of you've got a fifty percent hit rate of someone changing their um changing their practice in in, in the first uh, in house screening in Dunedin. Mm. Wow, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I mean, hey, fifty percent—that's pretty good. Um, I'll, I'll be happy if I'll be happy if it's like a a, a two, three percent, maybe even a one percent. If we get one percent of the the globe, let's say, um, changing some form of their behavior because of this film, then oh, that would be that would feel like an incredible contribution um, to the to the issues that we're facing today. And of course, you know, this this film is not the end of my journey in terms of an activist and advocating on these issues. This is just one avenue of many. Um, that I'll be participating in to try and get the message out. Um, so yeah, wow, really awesome, really cool. So going back to the start of this process for you, you've used the word activist. You've said you're a passionate person. You've said you've always this has always yeah. sort of been, you know, what you're about. Mm. Where, what I'm interested in the process to that you got to you that you went okay, I'm going to make a documentary. Like, what led mm -hmm. you to that process, and why did you decide to make this documentary? Because Without doing any spoilers, this is not just a documentary on the on milk. You talk about the meat industry. Um, there's some some scenes in there about the tanning industry. There's some scenes in there about where to from here, about the farming, about agriculture. So yes, it's called milked, but there is a lot of information in this documentary about other forms in the agriculture sector as well. So what what why did you start this process and why did you make this documentary? Mm, there's a lot to unpack in that one. I guess I just start by saying it's interesting that you listed off a few different things, tannery, meat, uh, and a few different things that you listed. All of those things are linked with the, the industrial dairy industry. So um, for me, the drive to create a documentary based around milk or based around dairy farming is, is because it was essentially the common denominator that I could find right. that is blowing out into all of these different areas and when you have such a common denominator um, you're able to draw on experts from a, a range of different places and so uh, we were able to of course dip into um, that very big pool of matauranga of knowledge um, to have so many different experts contribute to this kaupapa and uh, yeah it's turned into a documentary that spans very broadly in terms of issues we're facing here we're faced with here in Aotearoa but um, you know, dairy, um, we talk about in the film, they're so powerful, so big. Biggest biggest company in Aotearoa is Fonterra, our socioeconomic community. Uh, the fabric of society, to a large degree, is influenced um, by dairy farming here in Aotearoa. So although, yes, it does touch on a lot of things in the film, I would say that at the end of the, the day, there are, there are at least common threads that draw them in uh, and make it relevant to talk about it in the same package. Um, for me, when I was younger... Um, I spent a lot of time at the skate park making, you know, um, videos and whatnot, me and my buddies. And so I was familiar with how to use a camera, how to use editing software and how to use the internet to communicate your message. And so um, when I started getting into activism and doing advocacy around animal rights issues and environmental issues, um, me being, you know, I was, I was homeschooled. I don't have any formal uh, education. I don't know how to do a whole lot to be quite honest, but I knew how to make videos uh, and how to communicate online. And so 
um, when, when I started doing advocacy, that's what I started with. I started with little social media videos. Um, and then eventually I was approached by Amy, our incredible director, and she was keen to do uh, a short piece that we did together. Uh, and we vibed with each other. Um, we worked well together. And so we started throwing around the idea of doing a documentary about uh, generally animal agriculture, um, but from a perspective from Aotearoa and about the situation here in Aotearoa. Uh, and as we started gathering information, we started realizing that dairy specifically uh, was the story to tell because a lot of the experts that we were going towards and a lot of the barriers and issues that we were trying to resolve um, had dairy at the very center. So mm -hmm. it changed from a documentary about animal agriculture in general and shifted specifically to dairy, um, which we thought was great as well because there's other documentaries out there, for example, Cowspiracy, which is an American-based film mainly looking at red meat production and consumption. Um, and they didn't touch on dairy. Uh, and there is a lot about uh, dairy production um, like all things of big industries, a lot of things that happen behind closed doors and that consumers are not aware of. And so we thought, hey, since the story hasn't been told yet, and since Aotearoa is now known for producing dairy products, it's become a part of our identity, you could say, unfortunately, um, who better to tell the story, especially because we're so economically reliant on this industry, we call it the backbone of our economy, even though we dispute that in the film, um, who better to tell the story, we thought. Yeah. I yeah, um, I have to say, and 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 I'm, I'm always careful not to give out spoilers. I think the great thing about your documentary is there is so much information in there, even one or two little tidbits here and there is going to be insignificant to the vast amount of information people can see. But when mm. one of the things that shocked me that I did not know, and I don't know whether this was because I missed it or it's not general knowledge, and I won't say what exactly the answer is, but when you talked about the emissions that Fonterra has compared mm -hmm. to various other entities. Uh, I was mm -hmm. shocked by that. And I think, you know, especially with a left-wing government um, who who professes to, you know, want to do something with the environment and to, you know, use our quote-unquote, quote-unquote, clean green image, quote-unquote, um, that I, I'm sh I was shocking. That was shocking. I mean, there's there other shocking literal footage and imagery in, in your documentary, but that information was shocking to me mm. about how that's acceptable. Yeah, I mean, how is it acceptable? It's incredible. Um, mm. I accept and concede, you know, we are a food producing nation. I wish we weren't, but we are a food producing nation and we have chosen to go down um, the intensification of dairy production. And with that comes a whole lot of emissions and um, our government would have known that that was the case. Um, but yeah, we use this um, feeding the world narrative um, to justify it. Um, but yeah, you'll see in the film, it's it's been put in the too hard basket. Um, yeah. we're, cash we're cashing in our natural resources and we don't have an exact alternative um, for the type of spending that we want to do, for the type of lifestyles that we want to maintain. Um, so it's been put in the too hard basket. But um, as we talk about in the docker, it's it's blowing out everywhere. And it's come the time that if we don't address the problem here, um, like many things, right? If we don't address the problem now, it's going to create bigger problems down the line. Uh, yeah. So even in that too hard basket, we've got to start talking about it. Well, I mean, the thing about the too hard basket or people talk about putting it up on the too hard shelf, that eventually it has to come off. 
you know, whether whether you want it to come off or, or come out of the basket, eventually it's going to. So it's, it's all well and good to put it aside for a day, a week, a month, a year. But at some stage, whether you like it or not, it's going to come out. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, I, as I was watching your documentary, I was reminded of a Michael Moore documentary, Roger and Me. Have you seen the Roger and Me documentary of Michael no. Moore? No. You should have a look at it because Roger and Me is a documentary that Michael Moore made. It's kind of his first documentary, arguably one of his best, you know, way before Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11 and those things, where yeah. he was living in Flint, Michigan, which was the home of one of the big American car brands. I can't remember right now. And Roger was the CEO of the you know, of Ford or of Chevrolet or whoever it was. And the documentary is about him trying to get an interview with the CEO because all these all these factories are shutting around Detroit and around Michigan and all his peers, all his people, all his family members are losing their jobs. And so this documentary is called Roger and Me and it's him chasing this guy down, Roger, and trying mm. to actually get an interview with him. That's pretty much the whole documentary. Although obviously in that documentary, he's giving out information about what's happening on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as I was watching your documentary, I thought, oh, Fonterra is your Roger. You know, that's your, mm. that's your, your person that you're chasing and looking for interviews from and trying to get information out of um, that at the start of the documentary are problematic. And we won't talk about what happens at the end of the documentary because then people can see it. So I would, if you haven't seen it, I'd recommend it. You should check out Roger and me. It will probably relate yeah. to you. I, I'm sure it will. Roger, yeah, I've called Fonterra a few other names, but um, yeah, they're, def <laughs> they're definitely my Roger in the film. Um, we tried numerous ways um, to interact with them. People will see how that pans out. i got to stop saying that, hey, you'll see it in the film. Um, uh, the story could have been bigger than us just talking um, to Fonterra. There are other dairy producers in Aotearoa who have similar issues, um, but Fonterra unfortunately had to had to had to be the main ones copying it in this one. Um, uh, they deserve well, it because they are the, the biggest. Reason. Players, yeah, for obvious but... reasons. Yeah, they're the biggest. Mm. So mm -hmm. obviously they were going to cop it. I but, didn't. But do I just say there are others out there as well that I could wave the finger at, but we'll keep it to Fonterra for now. Well, the other, well, I mean, there is a, a beautiful moment in your documentary, uh, not to spoil it too much, uh, but I, I will say this as well. When you're talking to a, a dairy group in Canterbury and they use the line, uh, you know, we, yeah. that's why we're having this interview because we're into transparency. And then you ask them several questions and they basically go, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to answer that. Yeah, I'm not going to answer that. It's like they've just used the word, we want to be transparent. And then they do everything they can not to be transparent. I was like, to me, that was one of the highlights of the whole documentary because it was incredibly sad and difficult to watch because you're like, what are you fuckers doing? But it was also kind of hilarious. It was, you know, big, just big... yeah, I just, there are a few people that I really feel for uh, in the documentary because they're having to front uh, these industries and, you know, it's their face. It's, it's them, them as individuals who are having to front um, uh, my criticisms uh, and they're having to either not answer create bullshit excuses or look like a, a fool because they're not allowed to tell the truth because you know because of um the fact that if they do um they're going to be outing their own industry and so i just have to say yes there are some moments uh, and similar to that one that i think are uh really good little nuggets um but at the same time i can't help but feel uh for the individuals that had to do that and had to front the industry and, and now their face is going to be uh, put there and, and they're going to be the ones seen as being deceptive and whatnot but i have to bring it back to the fact that they are representing these huge multinational conglomerates who have so much sway so much power their jobs depend on putting on a good public face yes i would prefer they had jobs in other uh, sectors but yeah 
I like the I like the part you're talking about as well, but as well, oh, I, I feel for you. I feel for you. I'm sorry. Um, I was I was wondering from you as well. Um, what I didn't get a sense of in the documentary, and it's more. See, what, what I'll probably do is ask you some questions that I think maybe when other people watch the documentary, they might think as well. So it might reveal mm. something about the documentary, but the real the reality is it's something that I think people when they see it they'll be wondering as well. So one of the ones I was wondering is mm. what your personal views are. And I know that mm. you talk about moving away from dairy and moving away from meat. Are you someone who's vegan yourself? Are you a, like a non-meat eater and a non-dairy? And, and and then I always like to know why people are. Um, mm. And the reason I like to know why is, is it an ethical thing? Is it something that because you don't want to be a part of big, you know, big farming? You know, where do you sit on that for yourself personally? Yep, vegan. I've been vegan for maybe five or six years. Um, and I, okay. I really hope that people are able to look past the individual uh, and see the messaging. Um, we all have our own bias, right? Uh, and I clearly have a bias here being a vegan. Um, but, you know, let's, let's have conversations about uh, the facts, the statistics. Um, let's actually have courted or meaningful dialogue about the issues we're facing rather than judging the character. Um, but I totally understand people will want to uh, have that information and I've decided to be transparent ever since the, the start of the film uh, was released. I've been calling myself an activist, even though a lot of people are like, hey, don't do that. Um, but, you know, that's just who I am. Uh, and that would that would come out uh, eventually. I've been criticizing Fonterra for a long time. I've got videos on yeah. YouTube that, I, that people can watch. And so that information was going to come out. Um, but yeah, uh, my motivation behind it, um, there are so many reasons uh, to advocate for this way of life today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I could rattle off all sorts of, of rubbish, but um, the, the why in terms of my origin um, was because I would say I was homeschooled. I grew up on a farm where we, well, lifestyle block, I would say very low scale, um, very small lifestyle block where we had our own animals. Yep. Um, and we killed our own animals for consumption. And because I guess I was the youngest in the family, it was always my job to go out and feed the chickens, feed the pigs. Um, I built very, very strong connections with these animals. Being homeschooled and uh, not having a lot of social engagement with other people, um, the animals were essentially uh, my peers. And so when we came to times when it was time to do a slaughter to kill an animal, it uh, had had a very strong uh, impact on me and of course I used to do a lot of like trapping possum hunting um, a lot of shooting and, and whatnot and uh, yeah just eventually you know throughout my upbringing I had small pockets small moments where I would I would share a moment with an animal you know when you're looking into the eyes of an animal and you feel that they're looking back at you uh, and you and you feel a sense of connection um, then when it moves on to the, the times for slaughter, um, you're faced with some very challenging uh, questions, especially when you have other options to sustain yourself. For me, I've been very, very lucky to always have food on the table uh, and to have supportive parents um, that have allowed me to um, experiment with different ways of eating, uh, which I know a lot of people don't have. So, um, yeah, I went vegetarian. Uh, when I was about the age of 13, I was the only one in my family that went vegetarian. Everyone else just um, carried on. Um, I went vegan uh, a long time later, probably about 10 years later. I was addicted to cheese, just like everybody else is. Cheese pizza, cheese pizza, hot sauce. Oof. I mean, I eat the same thing now, but a vegan version. But yeah, that had me hooked, 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 hooked. 
Uh, and I used to make fun of vegans. You know, I'd see vegans like I, I remember going to a circus and they they had their like you know save the elephants, um, and I, I and I just me being an immature little little shit. I was making fun of them, you know, uh, and, and it's, 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 it's ironic that I would turn into one of them, but, um, uh, I was, I was, yeah, I don't know how it happened exactly, but little bits of pockets of information come to you. And one day I had a bit of an awakening, I suppose you could say I was, you know, out on my veranda, looking out into the ngahere, you know, connecting with the universe. And I just had a bit of an epiphany, I guess. I was like, ah, oh, I like being a vegetarian. Why don't I, why don't I think about taking that a step further and why, why don't I start educating myself on the impacts of uh, dairy production, um, what animals go through for dairy production. And I was eating a lot of eggs at the time as well. So then I started to look into um, some of the not so nice things about egg production, um, the information that I found aligned with my ethics. Uh, and so then it was a, yeah, an easy decision from there. So without trying to pigeonhole you, it sounds like, because there seems to be um, people who make the decision for one of kind of two or three reasons. One is is the ethical issue, uh, which mm. is a huge one. The other is like people just don't like the taste, and so they don't go down that path. I've, I've always, and I'll tell you my my journey, um, I've always sort of been of the opinion that in an ideal world, what I'd like to have in the future, maybe after after my kids are finished with school, is like a, like a farmlet up on the, uh, you know, Otago coast somewhere, and maybe have my own, uh, livestock there to do perhaps what you you said your family did but then I can also yeah. see how difficult that would be if you're out hand feeding the the cows every day to then have to send them off to slaughter I get that Those as well big because, eyes as big beady yeah. eyes because <laughs> for me their nose oh, the for sorry. me the the difficulty in the whole thing is the is the factory farming and the cage chickens and that kind of stuff um but I had an experience not too long ago and mm. I was watching a television program, a documentary program, where they were catching tuna, and they pulled the tuna onto the onto the the boat. They they put it down and they kind of slid its stomach open, and they you know so it was fresh as fresh. And I just had this thought, and and I'm not vegan or vegetarian or anything like that, but I just had this thought, you know, imagine a larger sentient being came to Earth, and then did that to us. They treated us like we were treating the tuna and i just kind of went and that's uh, you know what i'm not i'm not don't don't get me twisted i'm not putting out there i'm i'm you know anything special but it did it has caused me to rethink the whole kind of situation so for me it's sort of a, a like a sentient being another creature kind of thing that's got me thinking as opposed to even more so than the factory farming and that kind of thing as well but like as for the factory farming you know we do free range eggs and that all we can although i do know and i have seen i mean if anyone hasn't seen it yet um super size me too you know there's that super size me documentary super size yep, me yep. too is on is on um chicken farming and stuff he's, he's not dead yet wow he was able to make a no. second film Oh, they, they do things like they show what um, barn raised eggs can be. And they, all they have to do is have like an outside area the size of, you know, 20 chickens can get into. And although they've got 10,000 chickens in the barn, as long as they've got a tiny mm. outside area, they can refer it to mm. it as whatever the title is. So I'm not saying it's perfect, but I, but, but that's sort of my journey at the moment, what I'm talking through with these sorts of things. Um, mm. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear why people have gone in that direction. Yes. Um, I mean, I don't know which road we want to take at the moment. Um, I could talk about egg production problems I have there. I mean, if it's a small scale operation, I think the only way um, 
to have any uh, ethics around it is to have complete control over every aspect of the production to ensure XYZ is done um, as ethically as possible. If you're buying free-range eggs, it's still going to have issues like, you know, the, the, the boys from the industry that don't produce any eggs, they get macerated on day one, chopped yeah. up. Blah, 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 blah. They're seen as a waste product, you know, even if it's free range, the best free range system that you could imagine, you know, um, even even the chickens themselves, um, they'll either go through a mating process with roosters. It can be quite brutal or they'll artificially inseminate the hens. You know, there's just a whole raft of interesting questions that we've got to ask ourselves. You know, how would we feel about that alien coming down? and inseminating us and then stealing our children or our, our eggs uh, yeah, really very questionable things um uh and in terms of what you talked about possibly getting a little homestead and having a small scale operation um uh, for me myself um i like to respect the animals and i feel like we have done things like factory farming um that have essentially put us on a path or put us on a plane of existence where I don't think we got any right at all to entertain those ideas of, of, of taking an animal and using it for our own interests and our own will. We, we lost the, uh, the chance of having that type of relationship when we started doing fucked up things like factory farming. But even if you were to do a small scale thing, I'm not trying to say that, um, that you're a bad person or that you shouldn't do that. Um, if, if that's what you want to do and you are comfortable with doing that, um, but, but let's, let's talk to our kids about it. Let's be transparent about it. Let's not try and skirt around these hard decisions. Uh, let, let's be as open and honest about it. And if you can look that animal in the eye and kill it and eat it, you do what you want to do. It's when people hide these things from other people and make up interesting narratives to justify things um that i that i take issue with it um propaganda yeah. from industry perpetuate negative things is is the issue that i have with something if you want to do a small scale um like like i often say you know i don't do it myself and i don't advocate for it but if you're a hunter and the only meat that you consume comes from animals that you yourself have, have hunted that's worlds better than going to the yeah, supermarket yeah. and participating in industrialized farming systems. Uh, and if everyone in the world ate meat from uh, animals that you hunted, I mean, we'd be eating a vastly reduced amount uh, to the point where someone like myself probably wouldn't feel the need um, to stand up and make a lot of noise about it because the problem uh, would be reduced to a level where I'd probably start talking about something else, to be quite honest. <laughs> no, I've heard, I've heard that. Um, I listened to Joe Rogan a fair bit. Now, people love or hate his politics, but he is a hunter and he hunts elk. And he says that's the only meat he ever eats. And he doesn't participate in the factory farming thing because he that's that's where he gets his meat from. And as I said, not to, not to either pro or con him as a person and a broadcaster, but is yeah. an example of that, that thing that you talk about if you eat what you catch, it's a very different scenario than getting something in cling fill. Although that's a lot being cards on the table. That's currently what I do. I'm not saying I don't do that. So mm -hmm. just, but it's a, I, but I also know it's very different. But we're all on a journey as well. Because the other thing is the farmlet idea in general. Like um, the person who who was watching the documentary with me last night, who had um, coconut milk this morning, is now thinking, mm -hmm. well, the the let's be honest. And I really want to talk to you about new culture. But let's be honest, the, the taste of milk alternatives and stuff like almond milk or soy milk or whatever are very different 
and they're thinking they love their coffee. If they were to keep their milk in their coffee, but change the other places they're using it to alternatives. Like I like almond milk on cereal when I'm having, because I like the taste of almond milk. Almond milk and coffee changes everything. And it's like that, that I'm not saying this person's going to do that, but they maybe they're on a journey that's going to start to reduce their use, which may eventually turn into no use at all of, of you know, dairy milk, if we can call it dairy milk, milk. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not going to give people a pass. You know what I mean? Like someone, someone says to me, I only eat a little bit. And I'm like, okay, well, what are you, are you looking for my validation or something? Like um, people can do whatever they want to do. Um, I, I'm, I'm more than happy uh, for people to be on whatever journey that they're on. All I want to do is present information, have discussions with people, find ways to talk about these things. I'm not here to tell or judge anyone on what they do. Um, uh, and, I, and I do support uh, people uh, saying that they're making incremental changes if they've got quite a big goal. Um, I very much support that. Um, but yeah, definitely not looking to pass judgment on anyone. Absolutely understand that um, we've got uh, so much stuff on our back these days as members of the society. We've got a range of um, incredibly difficult things to navigate through on a daily basis. Um, but yes, definitely any change to someone's diet or behavior, if it aligns with their values and ethics, I completely support it and would encourage people to go down that route. Is it, um, is there an element of this, which is fairly a privileged conversation as well? Like I sometimes think about, you know, and, and I'm going to stereotype here, which is pretty awful, but the, 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 the family in South Auckland on a benefit, the family anywhere on a benefit. And, you know, we want them to eat as well as they can. And the tray of, you know, caged eggs is a good source of protein for them. And it's affordable. Is any part of this a privileged conversation for those that can afford, um, better alternatives or are we in a space now where those alternatives are available freely at a good price to everybody and we're, we're and society is making excuses as to not make the change multiple ways i can go here um there is of course issues with healthy food being available even for meat eaters you know the the cost of fruit and vegetables is expensive even for someone who eats a standard western diet um, access to healthy food is an issue uh, however the main privilege that I would say we're talking about here is a privilege of time and education. Uh, if, if, if this family in West Auckland that you speak of were to sit down with me and we were to go through a meal plan and, yeah. and to have a bit of discussion about nutrition, um, then I, I could guarantee you that I will get them on a healthier and more affordable diet than what they're currently eating if they are consuming milk, dairy, eggs, uh, meat, um, it's so it's it's just a matter of uh, talking about these things in a way that's helpful for other people, providing resources around um, cost analysis and the exact nutrition we need. Because people, you, you talked about protein, ain't nobody in Aotearoa suffering from a protein deficiency. You know what I yeah. mean? It's all all this propaganda coming out of people saying you need your protein, meat and milk's good for blah blah blah. blah. Um, but uh, yeah, no one no one in the in the uh, in a, in a country as privileged uh, as, as Aotearoa uh, is, is suffering from a protein deficiency. Um, we might have some people suffering from other forms of deficiencies, but um, protein is definitely not one of them. To suffer from protein deficient, deficiency, you essentially have to be uh, under consuming calories. If you eat a, uh, a diet that is calorically uh, adequate for your body type, then you, you're by definition essentially going to be getting enough protein 
unless you're just eating table sugar or something. But if you're eating a balanced diet of breads and pastas, beans, legumes, et cetera, et cetera, and hitting your caloric benchmark as an individual, then simply by definition, you're going to be getting the protein that you need. Um, and so the, the cheapest foods out there, the rice, the beans, the corn, the lentils, the pulses, um, they're the cheapest food, cheapest foods on the market. People just need to know how to cook them, how to make them taste good. Uh, if you've got, if your whanau doesn't like the taste, obviously you're not going to continue, you know, especially if you're having to experiment with new foods all the time. And each time they're like, oh, this is yuck. Then of course, it's just going to be easy to go back to that, you know, 24 pack of chicken legs from the factory farm and, uh, and, and, you know, for me, for someone who understands um, the things that are involved in, in chicken farming, the amount of antibiotics, the harm that uh, animal-based proteins and all these other things can do, the fact that those have become the go-to sources of nutrition for our low socioeconomic demographics is a terrible thing. Uh, they should be going to the lentils and the chickpeas and the rices and things like that. That's what most impoverished countries live off of. And these impoverished yeah, countries yeah. are usually hardy, disease-free individuals. It's when we start consuming and especially over-consuming on the standardized Western diet that we see a lot of the dietary issues um, that now a lot of our people um, are starting to be affected by hormonally sensitive cancers like prostate, breast cancer, type 2 diabetes, heart disease. These, these, are, these are symptoms of an entrenched American Western standardized diet. Um, yeah, so no, I really I thought, hope I, having these conversations I, about moving to more nutritious, cheaper foods. I thought it was a fascinating point you made in the documentary about Māori, you know, 200 years ago, didn't know what dairy was. So that's, mm. I mean, I, I sometimes think about that when, you know, the, the, I, it was a trend for a while that you should you should eat the way your DNA DNA teaches you to eat. You know, how, how many thousands of years did your ancestors eat in a certain way? Like, I'm, mm. I'm Irish, so that would be a potato, um, a potato diet for me. But yeah, it, I think it's a really good and clear point around around milk and how um well, dairy i guess near but milk and how um, unimportant it is to our culture and how it's become i guess we've been told how essential it is but if you just think about that one point 200 years ago Marty didn't know what milk was it shows how unimportant it actually is but yeah i was gonna say um, maybe maybe you found your next documentary i'm thinking about um <laughs> Uh, what's his name? Ramsey, the chef Ramsey. Oh, no, it wasn't. It was Jamie Oliver who did those series on school lunches, how he remade oh, yeah. uh, family school lunches. Maybe you can do one where you're working with a few families in New Zealand and showing them how to eat properly at a, at a, at a, at a good price and eating better food. Might be documentary number yeah. two, bro. It could be. It could be. Um, um, yeah, so many um, foods that have become normalized into today's diets were not part of... Um, you know, the cultural landscape of Aotearoa uh, pre-colonization, you know, like, like chicken and lamb and beef and pork, all of these things uh, introduced uh, foods as well. You know, so are lentils and chickpeas and, and pulses and stuff. So I don't really take that exact argument of um, we should be eating what our ancestors ate because uh, those foods aren't even available anymore. Yeah, true. Um, but what we can eat are foods that were similar to them. Um, from the research that I've done, I found that most indigenous people have a very starch heavy diet. Although they're seen as hunter gatherers, um, often the staples that we find for Maori, it was kumara and it was things like fern root. Um, those were staples and we need to return to those staples. Maybe not those exact things because they may not be available, um, but things that are similar in terms of their uh, nutritional profile, 
similar in terms of the type of climate that they can grow in and similar in terms of um, the different um, relationships that that food or that plant has with its environment, with its soil, with its water. Um, there are a lot of similar foods that our ancestors used to consume in large quantities that could be recreated to a degree. Uh, we don't have to be eating their exact uh, menu, uh, but what I say is that we should be eating with their intentions rather than uh, the exact foods that they ate. Because if we ate with their intentions, then we would mm -hmm. be looking primarily for food that is sustainable for us and our future generations and something that is, is sustainable and maintainable for our environment in terms of a food production system. Is there any research, and this is complete naivety, I'm asking this question, is there any research that, that points to how Māori treated meat? Uh, like, you know, there was obviously abundance of bird life in, in New Zealand. Was there any... Is there any evidence as to what portion of uh, Māori diet before Europeans got here was was bird, was meat? Um, no, it's an, it, it's a question that I have as well. Um, all I know is that our, our primary staple that we could rely on no matter what was the kumara. That's what we could yeah, rely right. on to always be there. Um, definitely, we, we've, we've eaten a lot of uh, ika, fish, kaimoana, manu, birds, um, definitely. But, uh, you know, we... I'm not trying to say or define the ancestral Māori diet, but we live in a changing world. And like I say, not all of these foods and ways of living are accessible for everybody. But the intentions, the values behind those ways of living can be recreated to a degree. When we think about what Māori would have wanted, what my ancestors would have wanted, like I said, they would have wanted a sustainable, healthy food source for future generations and something that they can continue providing for future generations uh, mm -hmm. and to look after the whenua. Those are things, those are values that we can put into our current food system. Um, I'm not trying to say that Māori were vegan, you know? I, 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 don't, I, don't look, I don't look to the past and take examples and say, oh, hey, hey, that guy does it the way that I like it. Let's, let's copy exactly how he does it, you know? Um, we can draw inspiration from our ancestors and from the past, but we have to also acknowledge that we exist in a changing world uh, and even things that we participated in way back, they may not be relevant anymore. Um, tikanga yeah. changes, which people need to understand. Ways of living can change uh, and there's nothing wrong with sharing a bit of cordial uh, around alternatives. Yeah. And look, that question was asked really based around just, I was wondering, I, don't, I wasn't suggesting that that, that mm, we should mm, copy mm. exactly. Um, you said something uh, previously, and I wrote it down as you said it, um, talking about families, whānau, uh, cooking, and if, if the, the family doesn't like the taste, then that's not going to mm. continue on. And I think for me, a, a lot of the um, sort of issues, issues is the wrong word, but I guess practicalities around um, like vegan food and, and, and meat and dairy um, alternatives thus far, have been the taste because um i had a i had a girl living in my house she was a boarder for a while who who was doing a mix between kind of vegetarianism and veganism and she used to joke about the the, the chicken replacement that she had and gave it to me to taste it up and it just it wasn't anything like it uh, which is fine and people have different tastes but but what i wanted to say is when i saw these guys in your documentary who is run mm. by a kiwi guy matt gibson they're called new culture and this is cheese. People, people who are watching, this is cheese that they've made with no cows at all. They use a process of fermentation and 
it adds, you'll tell this better than me, but it, it comes out with the same protein profile as actual dairy. So it tastes, operates, looks, feels l- literally identical. Is that, is that right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's so identical. It has similar health issues that I would talk about, you know, in terms of consuming dairy from a cow, uh, this lab produced precision fermentation way of producing these dairy proteins have the same health implications, negative health implications associated with dairy protein. That's how similar it is. It's literally the same thing. Uh, And so I'm not really saying that people should avoid it because it could potentially have deleterious effects on your health. Um, uh, What I'm I'm saying really is that that's backing it up, I would say. The fact that it is so similar that it's going to have these negative impacts just shows how precise it is in terms of it replicating this product. Um, For me, uh, plant-based alternatives that already exist, um, which are cheaper to produce and more sustainable than than lab-based foods, I would say, they're already available to us. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so uh, I get a little bit frustrated when um, lab-based foods are presented as a solution, because for me, the, solu- the, the, the alternatives, the solutions are already there. We don't need to spend a further trillion dollars uh, creating this, this future food um, system. Um, but, but I am, of course, happy that such a product exists because, yeah, like, like we say, taste is a big thing for people. Um, your taste yeah. buds change, by the way, you know, but hey, um, if, if, if you're looking for the exact, exact same thing, this is, this is the one I, I, I often talk to people um, because I help some business and stuff with communication on, on the side. Well, actually, that's probably where most of my income from. This is sort of on the side. Well, I don't know, whichever way. Um, and I often talk to them about what's the outcome you want in this? Like, what's the outcome you want from what we're doing right now? And sometimes if the outcome is X, even though you want to go hard nuts in a different direction, it's, it's more appropriate and it's better for your outcome that you want to stay a path. And like a good example, let me give you a silly example. If you're dealing with someone difficult and the outcome is you want them to exit from the whatever the situation is, sometimes it's good to treat them like they're right or they have, you know, they have a, 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 a you know, their complaint is valid even when it's not because the outcome is you want it to go a certain way. And I wonder with this as well, I hear what you're saying and I, and I completely concur with you that there are solutions right now, but if the outcome we want especially from watching your documentary to bring it back to that is to impact the dairy industry. It would seem that something like this new innovation, which is, and I think they talked in the documentary about this is a B2B disruption. This is a business to business disruption and the consumer can continue on their practices. Now that would seem to me to be the perfect solution for the outcome of reducing dairy. Definitely. Um, But, you know, I'm sure you'll have a lot of people listening who will agree that our current modern uh, food system, food production system, and distribution is completely broken as it is. Um, so finding ways to perpetuate the same food system uh, has its own problems. Um, yeah. But yes, but as, but as you say, yes, this will be a, a business-to-business disruption. Uh, the main commodity that our milk is turned into, for example, is milk powder, which ends up in confectionaries, you know, like dusted on the edges of like seasoned wedges and uh, in chocolates and things like that. And so the consumer has no idea about that process. This is going to be completely business to business. This commodity, is, is it will be phased out. It, it is the easiest um, dairy protein 
that is, is, is replicatable using this precision fermentation method. It's going to be the first. It's, it's, the, it's in the firing line as we speak um, about being replaced. Uh, and so, yes, it's, it's great in that sense of, of um, uh, getting dairy out of that position and, and freeing up um, area and resources for producing other things because this lab-based alternative will be more sustainable. It will free mm. up room to think about other alternative ways of producing food um, since we will no longer have animal agriculture um, taking up so much space, which is around, I think, you know, we talked about in the film, three quarters of land in the world is used for either farming animals directly or for growing food to feed to animals. And so yeah, anything yeah. we can do to, to reduce that burden in terms of resources we're using to produce dairy is, is, a, is a great one. But at the same time, inherently broken food system. Um, so I'm really not interested in, in, in uh, perpetuating that. But at the same time, it's like, oh, geez, um, that's a whole nother movie, whole nother conversation. No, no, but I, but I get that as well because I heard a conversation with someone the other day um, about uh, single-use straws, right? And they were talking about how single-use straws was an issue. And I heard the conversation going on between two people and they were talking about, yeah, but now we use paper straws and they're biodegradable. And the person made the point, yeah, but they're still single-use straws. I mean, just because they're biodegradable doesn't mean it solves the problem of single-use straws. It's still waste. It's still all the stuff as opposed to someone, I mean, I haven't done this, but buying a metal straw they carry around with them. So whilst it does help the problem, it's, that it is a solution to the problem of plastic straws it still perpetuates the issues of single-use straws and i went oh that's really interesting because now you think about it from a different perspective of oh and i, I sort of hear similar things to what you're saying even though yeah. it's another solution it still perpetuates maybe the issue overall or some of the issues overall yeah it's um uh we keep finding i guess you could call it like a silver bullet approach um or a single issue um, approach to solving a systemic issue um, why do we need straws you know why are you producing the straws in the first place it's such a luxury yeah. item in the first place um, I understand I, I've heard from a lot of people say from the disability community who talk about straws being incredibly helpful for them completely understand that and and, and hope that route is still accessible for people um, but yeah um, <laughs> there's absolutely no reason for us to be producing single use anything uh, yeah. and, and it ties into the conversation of, you know, can we all just move to um, farming regener regeneratively, for example? Can we all just buy electric cars? No, we cannot. We cannot just all buy electric cars. We cannot all just farm the animals that we have regeneratively. Um, we need to be consuming less. We need to be producing less. We need to be managing our resources in a way where there's more efficiencies and less waste. Um, so Absolutely. If there's a single issue approach to a systemic uh, problem, it's not going to work. And I, I'm not saying we tackle every issue in existence in the film, um, but we did try and tie in as many things as we could so that it takes a more holistic approach. Um, back to the documentary. So a couple of questions about the actual documentary as well. And let's um, while people mm. are watching, we'll, we'll do it in silence. But there's a little there's the uh, uh, the um, trailer playing beside us as well. Uh, there was a moment in the documentary that you were warned, I think, by the maker of Cowspiracy about the kickback or the pushback you were going to get from mm. making this documentary, including, you know, you know, potentially things like death threats and danger sort of thing. And then you said in the documentary something like, I'm going to continue making this documentary. But what I was unclear on is if you had had any kind of threats, have you had any kind of pushback or threats um, from even suggesting you were going to make this documentary or for making it? Um, like I said before, I've been making videos for a while and, and talking about the dairy industry for a while. And so I've received a bunch of threats um, 
working on different projects. Um, and of course, if you know social media and you know YouTube comment sections, you'll understand that people throw around a lot of accusations and say a lot of things. So yes, I'd say I've had all of those things, but primarily the reason why we included it in the film uh, is, is, to, is to demonstrate that, you know, this has happened to a range of other people before. There are, I think, maybe three people who talk about um, themselves as whistleblowers and raising these issues and the kickback that they have experienced. Um, things like bullets being left in their mailbox, uh, you know, yeah, handwritten right. letters of, of death threats. Um, and so the idea there uh, was to simply show that whistleblowers have a hard time speaking out. Um, I, I haven't received death threats in terms of this film. Uh, and I, we didn't mean to make it sound like that I was being, you know, having my life threatened as I was um, speaking, but uh, simply trying to capture that essence that it is a very uh, difficult place for a whistleblower. Um, and especially here in Aotearoa, we all know the dairy industry. Um, once this film is public and is released, um, I will not be surprised at all if there is a target on my back. I just really hope that people watch the film uh, and engage respectfully in a way that we can talk about solutions together. It's definitely going to rub some people up the wrong way, but the whole idea about the film is so that we can generate discussions and start talking about this. I was thinking as I was watching the documentary, because you talk about, we were talking about the guys from New Culture and a different way to do uh, dairying and how, uh, you know, actually cows are a very inefficient way of getting the product that we get out of them in the end and there's better ways of doing it. Um, my mum, my mum who's passed, um, used to talk about way, way back. She grew up with a, an Irish dad and, you know, our Irish mum and dad and, and they had, they didn't have a refrigerator when she was a little kid. They had a safe. That's what they called it, the safe. And the Iceman would come around every week and he'd put a big chunk of ice in the bottom of the safe. And that would mm. take away basically a week to dissolve, but it would keep the food, it would refrigerate that space and keep mm. the food in there somewhat cold. And the example I always wonder about and talk to people about is what happened to the ice man when everyone had fridges and the answer is he either disappeared or he evolved what happened to the people who who um who developed kodak film when everyone went digital well they either disappeared or they evolved and it feels to me watching your documentary that farmers dairy farmers are either going to disappear or they're going to need to evolve and I'm sure that Kodak example is a really good one because all those places that was developing Kodak film are now the ones who are printing digital photos. So you can evolve. You don't have to disappear. And I wonder how much pushback there is about the way I'm currently doing things, the money I'm currently making versus, hey, we need to start to look because it's time to evolve because if we don't, we will disappear. Do you get a sense of either of those options for people within the dairy industry? Yep, um, definitely. Um, you know, the carriage to the car is another example. Um, uh, it's a tricky situation, you know, moving into this time of global disruption around food production and automated systems. It's not just farmers who uh, are having their livelihoods threatened through this, this coming disruption of automation and whatnot. Um, but it is true, yes, um, farmers, uh, we have to adapt or we get left behind. It's very simple. Uh, and, and a lot of farmers are already doing that. And it's the ones who are in the best position who, you know, if you act early, that's good. Just like us with COVID apparently, right? Um, but it's true. If you act early, um, you're going to come out on top. And it's the ones who are 
uh, you know, the richest and the best position who are going to be able to do that. It's our smaller scale, um, usually family owned dairy farms who are going to really bear the brunt of this. They're going to have the least opportunity to diversify and to evolve into alternative systems. Um, you know, the, the dairy, the family owned dairy farm model is, is, is essentially a myth. Uh, if it's not now, it will be in the next um, 10 years or so, and it's all going to be industrialized. Um, however, um, Kiwis are known for their innovation and Aotearoa is known as a food producing country and we've got an incredibly good reputation. Uh, and so there's definitely avenues for people to move into, uh, but it's not going to be there for everybody for long. There are going to be farmers who are going to have to look for another job, unfortunately, just like everybody else um, who is facing disruptions. But there's certainly room um, for alternatives and for um, alternative exports and for us to move into different exports and whatnot. But it's, it's not going to be for everybody. Industrialization automation is coming uh, and some of our small scale farmers, unfortunately, are going to have to move on to something else. Hmm. Um. Although it's interesting because I was thinking last night about, you know, evolving or disappearing. We are literally, as we speak, in a situation where government has mandated that some people are going to lose their jobs because they've changed a rule or a law in society. We're talking about those who won't get vaccines who are in public sectors aren't, aren't going to be able to work in those jobs. So we currently yeah. have a climate where change within legislation is causing people to lose their jobs. And as I was watching your documentary, I was going, this government's already done that. Is this now a good time to talk about these changes in the dairy industry that yes, may that may lead to people not being able to do it, but we're actually doing that right now. Why would we then not do it in the next thing to make it to, to, to get some of these successes or, or better for the country that you're talking about? Oh yeah, I guess it comes back to that too hard basket. Um, and, you know, there are lobby groups, Dairy NZ, Federated Farmers, who will push back against legislative changes in this direction in terms of looking at alternatives for farmers or, or funding farmers out of the industry. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we, we plucked all that money out of thin air for COVID. Um, yeah. and, if we do, and if we do the sums and we look at the economic harm uh, and fiscal problem that this is, is creating for Aotearoa, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's just that we have incredibly large lobby groups who are entrenched uh, in the status quo um, who will try their hardest to keep it there. Um, if, you know, it's not a matter of us just looking at the facts and saying, oh, cool, let's, let's pick that option. Um, there are uh, heavily entrenched entities that will fight to keep the status quo. Um, so how do we get over that barrier? Um, for me, it's about informing the public so that we can all contribute to an informed decision. Um, but it's a long and hard road, that's for sure. But it, but it has been done before. I think about um, it was probably ten years ago. Um, and and forgive me, you'll you'll I, the name has jumped out of my head, but you'll know it. It was Cadbury switched to the is it is it palm oil or palm kernel oil or the one that displaces orangutans. Oh, uh, yeah, palm oil. Palm oil. Okay. So likely, I'm, yeah. pretty, I, I'm pretty sure it was Cadbury. Correct me if I'm wrong, anyone who's watching this. Switched to that, and there was a huge uproar, and everyone said they were going to switch to Whitaker's, and it forced Cadbury's hand, They and they went back to what they mm. were doing. So it, it has happened. You have seen this happening in, in this um, community before. Um, but, you know, it, 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 this is obviously a slightly, a slightly larger scale, seeing, as you say, 
I mean, I, I've always thought that tourism was our number one industry, but if, if it's not tourism, it's dairy being being up there mm. as uh, as the income earner. Hey, look, um, yeah. I've got one. Oh, so you go. Yep, go for it. Oh, no, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, tourism did take over the dairy industry in terms of um, export earnings for a good little while. Um, and for, for a while, that was kind of one of the main things I talked about because it's the dairy industry that's harming all of the aspects um, that, the, that the tourism industry profits from, you know, a clean, green environment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, but, you know, with COVID, um, tourism industry is not looking too hot anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but that's, that's, that's no reason to double down on the dairy industry. Um, our clean, green environment is good for us as individuals, not just for our tourism market, which, which people need to hold on to and remember. Um, I want to ask one more question about a specific question that I wonder if other people watching the documentary will wonder as well. So it's not a giveaway, but it's more of an expansion on. Uh, you were talking at one stage in the documentary about bobby calves, which is a horrific thing. I think most people would agree when they see what's going on. But Daniel Ebb, who's the agri-communications specialist in your documentary, it was obvious why some people didn't want to talk about things. But he said, I don't want to really talk or touch on the, the bobby calf issue. Was that because it was upsetting to him or was he someone who actually couldn't talk about it because there was a compromise in the work he was doing? Why did he not want to specifically talk about it? Ooh, I, res I have a lot of respect for Daniel. Um, I think he's doing yeah. a lot of great work in terms of um, analyzing our food systems and looking for solutions. Um, uh, why he didn't want to continue with his trail of thought there, I can't speak for him, but... Okay. Uh, it's 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 an emotive topic. It's a very sensitive topic, um, and I, I I feel personally that as he started to continue down that trail of thought, um, that he was probably going to be giving me more ammunition uh, than he wanted to give me. Um, so I think that's why he stopped with that train of thought, uh, and I think it's quite telling for someone like him, um, who talks about how you know we should have transparency and we should be able to accept the darker sides of this industry because it has a, a greater good that it's um, uh, contributing to. Very telling that he wasn't able to to go into that topic uh, because there are inherent um, issues around cruelty to animals and human supremacy and speciesism um, that would have popped up. Uh, and so, yeah, for me, I, I was happy that he left it where it is because I think it's quite telling the simple fact that he didn't want to get into it. Um, all right, dude, look, before we go, because I don't like to give out wrong information, I thought I'd do a quick Google search on it. Oh, and nice. here it is Good from, from 2009, Cadbury has bowed to consumer pressure and stopped using palm oil in its dairy milk chocolate. Um, mm, members of yeah. nearly 3,500 Facebook group take palm oil out of Cadbury chocolate bars were jubilant at this morning's news. So there you go. Just making sure that we uh, we put so so you know that that public pressure has has come to pass yeah. before on a smaller scale. Maybe maybe this is you know, the next one. If um if people are getting fussy about that, you know the palm oil industry has a um a byproduct called palm palm kernel expeller, um, mm -hmm. which is a food that we import. We import more of that than any other country in the world, uh, and it's used as supplementary feed in our dairy herd. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's one of those examples of how we've surpassed our environmental limits locally that we're having to stretch out into um, other spaces, such as um, Indonesia for palm kernel expeller. So, hey, if you if you get on Cadbury's back about palm kernel or palm oil, then you need to join me and get on the dairy industry's back about palm kernel expeller. Kia ora. Um, your documentary film, 
your film documentary, your documentary, Milks. Um, where is it showing and when? Do you know the exact date? I mean, people can just go to nziff.co.nz and look up Milk to yeah, find in the their license place. Just the easiest way to do it? That'll be the... That'll be the best place because we've already had a rescheduling of the premiere due to some COVID cases in Christchurch. So I won't say any dates here. Just definitely head along to um, NZIF. Um, man, I'm terrible for name. Um, head along to um, New Zealand International Film Festival's website uh, to check out the screening details because, yeah, I don't want to give out any information that's going to change because of this, this damn disruption of COVID. Yeah, nziff.co.nz, and they've got um, the one. The one. a search engine right there. If you can see me, if you're watching us on the screen, and you can just type uh, M I L K E D, enter, and you will, there it is right there. Pop up just there. Like we go. That. Oh, look, hey, I just awesome. as, I see, awesome. as I see James Cameron's name there, I did want to ask you this because James Cameron's wife is in this documentary, and I noticed at the end in the credits, I think she's an executive producer or certainly a producer. Mm-hmm. James Cameron, yep. arguably one of the greatest yeah. filmmakers filmmakers in the world are certainly one of the most successful obviously he's seen it how does how does yep. a filmmaker feel about you know mr titanic mr avatar watching their uh their little kiwi kiwi documentary it's nice right i mean like i say um amy is more of a filmmaker than me um maybe if i was more Im- embedded into the film industry I'd, I'd do a bit more swooning but um for me <laughs> it's just that you know uh, he he bought a dairy farm uh, property um, close to Wellington. Um, he's a part of the landscape here in Aotearoa to a degree. Um, he he's part of the movement of encouraging plant-based alternatives. Uh, and so I thought, oh, it's inevitable that our paths are going to cross. I foresaw it. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, he's definitely a big a big name, uh, and I have to give a mihi uh, out to him as well. He's he's definitely helped in some aspects um, of this film. Um, I won't say exactly what, but he has he has helped us uh, and very appreciate it. And of course, to his amazing wife Susie, who who unfortunately is not the talking points, even though she was more involved um, uh, than James was in terms of helping us with the film. Um, she's never the talking point. Poor old Susie, but Susie, love you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I love for you to connect us with Susie at some stage. I think she's got an interesting story to tell about what they're doing as well. But we'll talk about that later. Hey, um, after the NZIFF. Uh, is it going to cinemas? Is it going to festivals? Is it going to a streaming platform if people can't get to the festival? Do you know yet? Um, so our goal is to get it in front of as many people as possible. Yep. Um, some people might say, hey, why don't you just put it on YouTube then? Um, but we're working with um, a large international distribution agency that's going to help ensure that it gets in front of as many people as possible, which is the priority. Um trying to hold on to uh, non-theatrical screening rights so that we can do community screenings and things like that. Um, but at yeah. the moment, um, it's in the hands of our um, distribution agency. Um, we don't want to put too many limits on them in terms of rights that we keep ourselves because we want to ensure that they can get the best deal uh, to get this film in front of as many people as possible. Um, but yes, um, I'm anxious and excited for people to see the film, and I really hope that it is accessible. I would love to make a promise about it being accessible on a certain XY date, but unfortunately, that's um, not where we're at. Um, but I want people to know that I want people to see the film, and so we're going to be advocating as hard as we can um, to make it accessible um, as soon as possible. But of course, we're going to be um, looking for the best deal that's going to get it uh, in front of as many people as possible so that the message is um, spread far and wide. And if people want to find out more about you, uh, Chris Hurdiwai on Facebook, any other good places to to, to stalk you on? Yeah. Uh, um, Instagram, 
Um, but yeah, uh, probably just the old the old Facebook and the old Insta. Good Give us a like. Dude, the um, I, I as you've probably not that I not not that I was trying to be braggadocious or anything, but as you've probably heard, um, I watch a lot of documentaries. You know, it's something mm. that I I've it's a genre I, I enjoy a great deal. Um, very 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 much enjoyed yours. Huge congratulations for what you've done. Thank you. Um, and as I in my little anecdotal story, I've I've already explained to you how it's made a difference already, and um, I'm sure it will open eyes around the country if not the world and um yeah i mean I, I i i'm excited about this one what it's going to do but i'm also excited about seeing what you do next as well so um stay in touch well, i want to talk to you about the next documentary as well whenever that comes out so that's really thank you so much pat